I love being able to talk about how we can better relate, how we can better express truth, how we can be more responsible as stewards of truth. I hope we really hang on to that concept that we have been entrusted with truth and as such you and I become stewards of truth and thereby we will answer to the one who sent us as ambassadors and stewards for what we have said and how we have said it. Last night, I had an opportunity to share some of my own story, and I was trying to point out that behind issues, of course, there are people. So when we talk about LGBTQ, homosexuality, transgender, and so forth, as issues, there is something emotionally safe about that, isn't there? When something is strictly academic, it does not necessarily penetrate my soul. When I am directly confronted with a flesh and blood example of that abstract concept, all of a sudden I'm dealing with something different. Now just for example, I see nothing ambiguous in the claims of scripture that there is no other way to salvation but through Jesus Christ. He himself said, no one comes to the Father but by me, and we know there is no other name given under heaven or earth by which we may be saved. That is a concept, that is a doctrine. If someone I love is on the edge of eternity, all of a sudden, this is very personal, isn't it? Now it's not just that's an interesting doctrine, that's this is someone I love. Are they ready or are they not? Now that's not only doctrinal, that is deeply emotional. So it is with our subject, gender and sexuality. We may hold a position as to what is right or wrong, but when we are confronted with someone who is living out the very thing that we believe to be wrong and outside of God's will, we cannot help but be penetrated emotionally by that. In fact, there is something wrong with us if we are not. This is to me where truth becomes very inconvenient. If I believe that there is absolute truth, and I must, I could not call myself a serious Bible-believing Christian if I did not believe there was such a thing as truth, objective, absolute, eternal truth. If I believe that, and I love someone who is not walking in truth, I am tempted to either kill truth in my own mind or kill love. If someone I love is outside of the truth, I am going to feel fear, I'm going to feel anger, I'm going to feel deep concern, it's going to be uncomfortable for me. Now, if I don't want to live with that tension, I may attempt to revise truth. Well, maybe if I can tell myself they're not outside of God's will, there, I can relax. So let's revise truth. Maybe the scripture is ambiguous about marriage. Maybe what we read in Leviticus, Romans, and 1 Corinthians, and 1 Timothy, to name a few, are not really relevant to this issue. If I can revise truth, then I can relax. Or I can go the other extreme and just say, I don't want to love you. It hurts too much. I worry. 
I'm concerned. I, I'm bound to you. But then, of course, if I choose either of those options, I cannot be Christ-like, can I? Well, it's one of the first descriptions we get of Jesus in John's gospel, full of grace and truth. And those are not contradictory. I tend to make them contradictory. As in, uh, do you want me to be nice or do you want me to be honest? I can't possibly be both, you know. Uh, but no, in real Christ-likeness, there is the tension of grace and truth not contradicting each other, residing together, and the person being willing to embrace that in her or his soul and in what she or he expresses. This becomes vital when someone you love is gay. Becomes vital. That's what I'd like to begin uh, our conference with this morning is the topic of how we respond when someone we love is gay. A quick business item, I was talking with my wife on the phone last night, and she said, look, if these people were willing to come out when everybody else seems to be staying home, and they kept the conference open, and they are, you know, in essence, defying the logic of the times, which is to be isolated, the least you could do is offer a discount on this. So I do have a video series. I brought uh, sign-up sheets for it. But if uh, any of you would like to take one of those uh, to get my six-part, there's a video series I've done on this topic, When Someone You Love Is Gay, with a workbook accompanying it and also a private group you can join if you sign up for it. And I also do a monthly Facebook Live for all of the group members who have joined that. If you would like to become a part of that, uh, let me give you this code, if you wouldn't mind jotting it down. It is FAMILY20. FAMILY20, FAMILY, all in capital letters, F-A-M-I-L-Y, all caps, 20, and put that as one word. If you grab one of the registration flyers and go home and register for this, enter that in and you'll get 30% off the series. So uh, we want to offer you that as a way of saying thank you for taking the time to, to come out for this. When someone you love is gay, my father and mother had someone they loved who was gay. And when I was 23 years old and I said, Mom, Dad, I'm gay, I was not trying to make trouble. I wasn't trying to be rebellious. I didn't mean to hurt anyone. I only wanted things to be authentic. Because for the lesbian or gay person who has a Christian family, it can turn into a bit of a nightmare of semantic game playing and general evasion. I would have to think whenever I went home and mom would say, so what did you do this weekend? Well, I had a date with a guy. Hmm. I had a date with Janice. Or where are you going this weekend? And I was going to go to a gay men's retreat and I had to say, I'm going to a football game or something, you know. And finally, I thought, I am sick of keeping this from them. So that was my only goal, was to respect them enough to be authentic with them and not to lie to them. And to this day, I believe in most cases, when someone you love is gay, they're normally coming out to you because they don't want to lie to you. They don't want to be evasive with you. What I did not realize was what my announcement would do to both of my parents. 
it would create what I now call the death of an assumption. The death of an assumption. And the death of an assumption is a pretty significant thing when you think about it. Our relationships do include certain assumptions, don't they? Any kind of relationship, even the most casual, includes an assumption. If I am uh, in the grocery store and I walk past someone in the aisle, I assume they're not going to pull out a knife and kill me. That's an assumption, and I think it's a very rational assumption. So all relationships include a certain amount of assumptions. This is quite true in family relationships, isn't it? If I have kids, I assume certain things. If I am married, I assume certain things. If I have siblings, I assume certain things. One thing I assume is that we're going to essentially stay on the same page. We were raised with certain beliefs. We held certain values and priorities. And we assume, perhaps logically, perhaps not, that we will all stay within the parameters of the standards and values and priorities we were raised with. When that doesn't happen, when someone we love says, this is what I am, this is what I feel, this is how I am choosing to live, now we have to deal with the death of assumption. Not the death of a relationship, hopefully not. There's no reason this should be the death of the relationship, and certainly not the death of the individual. But where there's death, there is always grief, isn't there? And where there is grief, there are emotional cycles. There is denial. This can't be happening. That's why I oftentimes get calls from parents who say, can you help our daughter? She thinks she's a lesbian. And I will say, why does she think she's a lesbian? Oh, I don't know. She's lived with this woman for 17 years. They own a house together, and now they're going to get married. No, I don't think she thinks she's a lesbian, and I don't think she's confused. I think mom and dad are in denial over something that has confronted them that they don't want to deal with. I get that completely. I really do. I had a rocky relationship with my father from the time I was a little boy. It was a relationship full of pain. Eventually, when my own life, by the grace of God, was coming together and I was engaged to a beautiful young woman who my dad thought was wonderful and we were starting to connect and relate and then we married and I saw him dancing at my wedding like a little boy and we finally had a father-son thing going. Two months after that, he called and said, the doctor has found I have throat cancer and it doesn't look good. Of course, I didn't believe it. I mean, I heard what he said, but it did not register because it was completely unacceptable to me. Dad can't die. That's not acceptable. We are just finally developing a relationship. I'm going to give him grandchildren. He is going to watch my ministry grow. We're going to have a wonderful life, and I'm going to see him through his old age. He's only 68, for heaven's sake. No, he can't die, so that's simply not happening. That's classic denial. I'm confronted with something completely unacceptable, I will therefore not assume it's true. Which can segue into anger. I remember when I was at his condominium uh, helping care for him. And I was still telling myself, he's going to get better any day now, even though he was wasting away in front of my eyes. 
and I saw the private nurse's chart that she kept by the bedside, and I flipped through it, and at the bottom, in big black ink, I saw that word terminal. It's a horrible word. And to see that, it hit me. What terminal? Terminal. Oh, my dear God, he's dying. And then the rage, that how could you let this happen? How could the doctors let this happen? Dad, why did you smoke cigars? It's anger, you know. To bargaining, the clear, you know, maybe we can work this out. I'll put you on a better diet and you'll get better. And then deep depression, oh, all is lost. And finally, acceptance, okay, I get it. Those are very common cycles. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came up with those, what, some 40, almost 50 years ago. And I think they still hold up to be true. And for all of those reasons, we do go on quite a roller coaster when someone we love is gay. Simply because, well, it's not so much like, oh, I don't want them to be gay. It's much more than that. I want them to be right with God. That's the problem. If we know truth about God, life, and humanity, then we would say, like John said in his epistle, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That's what we want for anyone we love. And anytime someone we deeply love is outside God's will, we grieve because we realize they are in danger. That is a dangerous place to be. They are outside of so much that God has for them. Their heart could harden. Things could happen. I don't want that. That's why JFK once said, uh, uh, I think very profoundly, when we have children, we release hostages to fate. I don't believe in fate as a Christian, but I kind of get what he's saying because when you have kids, I, I remember, my gosh, when my sons were born, you know that feeling that, oh, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. I've never felt like this. This level of love is like, transcends anything I've ever had. And then all of a sudden, uh-oh, what if? And the what ifs start, and I swear they never stop, do they? What if he has jaundice? What if he's not thriving? What if he's not nursing properly? What if he doesn't do his homework? What if a kid rejects him? What if he has an accident? What if, what if? What? And it cracks me up. People say, oh, they're 18. You got to let them go. Sure. I'll just turn off the dad switch and I just won't worry anymore. Thank you. That was very helpful. I do know at some point you have to shut up. I get that. But this business of, of just erase the emotional bond. It's a life sentence. Now I'm glad to have it. I'm glad to have it. But it does mean a roller coaster, doesn't it? I often call this the involuntary roller coaster. Someone I love is outside of God's will. I'm going to go up and down and around. And oof. It is, I think, especially difficult because it is the kind of roller coaster we did not expect to ride. Now, this, I will say, is not necessarily rational, but I think it is common. As Christians, we tend to assume that our loved ones, particularly our sons and daughters, definitely will have problems. None of us is so naive as to think they're going to be perfect children. And so we realize we give birth to these treasures. We are also giving birth to natural-born sinners, and that's a fact. And it shows early in life, and we, we recognize that. So I figure, as a dad, if I have Christian kids and I raise them in the faith and we are teaching them from the Word of God and we are living that out ourselves, 
Yes, my kid will lie to me. Yes, my kid will at times talk back. Yeah, he may not take the trash out when I tell him to. Or yeah, he may not do his homework. Or maybe she'll date the wrong guy. I mean, that I expect. But I expect them to be happening within certain parameters. It's like when you're watching a movie. The movie you're watching is of a certain genre, isn't it? Comedy, drama, science fiction, fantasy, adventure, horror, western, whatever. And you expect the plot to exist within the framework of the genre. So when I'm watching a western, I expect certain conflicts that are harmonious with a western. A barroom fight, a duel, a stagecoach, a, a horse chase. I expect that. What I don't expect is a spaceship to land. It's a Western, darn it. Come on. We don't have spaceships landing in a Western. What's John Wayne going to do with a spaceship? Well, that's what it's like when someone you love is gay. It's like a spaceship landed in the middle of your Western. Like, yeah, I knew we'd have problems, but not that. Which is one of the reasons so many of us feel so caught off guard when someone we love is gay. So what to do? I want to begin this by suggesting two broad primary goals. Two primary goals. Sustain the bond, join the work. Sustain the bond, join the work. Let's spend the rest of this session talking about how we do both. Sustain the bond, join the work. Um, first, let's start with sustain the bond based on the premise that God has entrusted you with your loved one. God has entrusted you with your loved one. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What have you that you did not receive? Whether it is your body, your gifts, your finances, your property, your opportunities, or the husband you have, the wife you have, the children you have, the siblings you have, what, what do any of us have that we did not receive? Therefore, and this to me is a critical point, I must assume that just as I am a steward of truth, I am a steward of my relationships. God has entrusted me with my sons, with my wife, with my extended family. That is something I will answer to him for at the judgment seat of Christ. I hope you and I never forget this. We have a date with the judgment seat of Christ. We will thank God if we are born again, not be facing the white throne judgment where anybody whose name is not found in the book of life is cast away. But we will, like athletes, stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, at which our works are going to be tried. And like athletes who have performed, we will then stand before the judges and the judge will rate us. That's the date we all have with the judgment seat of Christ. And all my works, as Paul said at that time, are going to be tried as with fire. What was wood, hay, or stubble, that's going to be burnt. What was gold and silver, that's going to be refined. And that's when you and I will receive our eternal rewards. Our salvation is not an eternal reward. We don't merit it through works, but our eternal rewards, which Jesus said to lay up. What are they? I'm... I mean, I understand that conceptually they are crowns of life and so forth, but really, I, I think it is beyond us to fully understand what they are. But I'll tell you this, if Jesus said, rack them up, I'm going to say, okay, 
they must mean something. So it's going to very much matter whether we suffer loss or whether we experience gain at the judgment seat of Christ. That tells me that I must take my relationship seriously, not just because I love these people, not just because that is a nice thing to do, but very important, I will answer to God for the way I have treated the people in my life. That is a maxim, absolutely. I will answer to God for the way I have treated the people in my life. Now that tells me then, if I want to sustain the bond because God has entrusted me with my loved one, then what is a goal? Join the work. Join the work, which is to say, God is seeking your loved one. If someone I love is outside God's will, I so often think only of my own emotional response. Oh, I'm worried. But I have to think a little more broadly. God is seeking my loved one. If I care, how much more does he care? God is seeking my loved one. And if God is seeking my loved one, that is what God is wanting to do. One of the most important things you and I can pray is, Lord, what are you doing? And how may I be part of what you're doing? I am inclined to say, Lord, let me tell you what I think you should be doing, and therefore I will do that. But a more important prayer is, Lord, what are you seeking to do? May I be a part of that. And this, to me, is a mind-blowing concept, but it's true. God condescends to allow you and I to be a part of his work. You think about that, it's extraordinary. God condescends to allow you and I to be a part of what he wishes to do. Now, you and I know he doesn't need us to do that. I mean, you think of the things God has entrusted humanity with. The preaching of the gospel, good grief, one of the most important, one of the most, the most important message that can be delivered to anyone at any time is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He entrusted it to people. Me, I think the angels did a bang-up job that first Christmas. They handled it very well. The message was clear. Um, nobody messed up. Nobody there were no scandals, there was no power play, uh, you know, I would have left it all to them, but God has said, as my ambassadors, as members of my body, as my representatives, I entrust you with this sacred message. Um, brief diversion, I think I get a little bit of that now as a dad. I didn't get it before, but I remember when my boys were young and I would be mowing the lawn. And you know how that plays out. Little guys budding testosterone, they hear a noisy machine, they want to be part of it, whatever it is. Now, when they got to be teenagers, they were not so to come mow the lawn. But as little boys, that was very attractive to them. So, okay. And they would come out and, oh, oh, oh dad, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, can we help? <laughs> okay. And so... You know, you got the white handle, and I'd say, okay, you guys get in the middle. And they'd get in the middle, put their hands up there and there and there, and I'd have the wide grip, and we'd all tromp around the yard. Now, you know, I can mow a lawn in 10 minutes easy. I mean, it took us, oh, about an hour uh, with their help. And uh, the lawn looked like a Picasso by the time we were done. You think I cared? My boys wanted to be a part of what I was doing. I loved it. I loved it. I still love it when my boys, my men, 
want to be part of what I'm doing. And as their schedule allows, they'll sometimes come with me, handle the book table. One of my sons is expert in audio and setting things up and overseeing things and administering and just being with me in my work. I love that. I still love that. So I think I get a little bit of why God says to limited, weak humanity, as my daughter, as my son, I want you to also be my representative. I, I want to entrust you with this. Be a part of what I want to do. So how do I be a part of what God wants to do in my loved one when my loved one says, Dad, I'm gay? There are three levels I want to look at here that we want to achieve. Stabilizing, clarifying, and dialogue. Stabilizing, clarifying, and dialogue. We want to, as much as possible, stabilize the situation. Then we want to get clarity. What are you expecting of me? What am I expecting of you? And then we want to finally, having done that, get into some redemptive dialogue, if possible. So stabilize the situation, clarify some essentials, get some redemptive dialogue going. Let's look at all these. Let's start with stabilizing, okay? Because it's messy, isn't it, when we hear something we don't want to hear? I don't care how prepared we are, when it hits, we can hardly be expected to simply be calm and precise and do it all correctly. That's why when somebody says, oh, my son just came out to me and I'm afraid I messed up the whole situation. I cried and I raged a little and I, I just don't think I handled it well. I, I, I say, well, what the heck would anybody expect you to do? This is not some nice, neat little thing we go through. It's messy. Intimacy is messy. So, of course, when there's a disruption, it, it gets messy. So, in, in the midst of all that emotion, you want to try to stabilize the situation as much as possible. Now, I find one of the best ways we stabilize the situation is to focus not on the gay issue, but to focus on what's happening between us right now. If I have a loved one who comes out to me as gay and I jump into talking about why that is wrong or why that is not God's will, I'm bypassing something very critical. Someone I love has just made herself or himself very vulnerable to me. I don't want to miss that. I want to recognize this could not have been easy for you. So before we get into the theological and the spiritual and the moral implications, I want to recognize what is happening between us. And if I messed up, I'm sorry. If I have given you the idea that I was going to look down on you because of this, or of when you first told me I blew up, or if in the past I have made remarks about lesbian and gay and trans people, that gave you the idea that, oh, I better never tell dad or mom the way I feel because look at the way they seem to feel about that whole community. If I have sent you that message, if I have handled this wrong, if I have handled us wrong, I am sorry. I mean, I am really sorry. I don't apologize for the positions I hold, but I'm sure sometimes I don't hold them perfectly. And so if I have in any way made you feel reluctant to tell me the truth, if when you told me the truth, you felt denigrated, I want you to know I am sorry for that. But I also want you to have some grace for me. And I want to have grace for you. We are going to get through this together. In fact, boy, that may be one of the most important things you can say right from the bat. 
we are going to get through this together. We may not understand each other. We may not agree with each other. We may have completely different worldviews, and we may discover all of those differences by the time our conversations are done, but we are going to get through this together. Because right there, you've established alliance and optimism at the same time. You've established alliance. This is not about me versus you. This is about me with you. I want to be with you. I want our relationship solid. And this is about optimism. I believe our love for each other is strong enough. Our family ties are intact enough. We definitely can handle this. It's going to get emotional. I may say the wrong thing. You may say the wrong thing. We'll show each other grace. Those are some ways you stabilize. Another way you stabilize, very important, is through safety and hearing. Safety and hearing. I believe that where there is real intimacy, there must be safety. There can't be intimacy without safety. We have to feel safe with someone if we're going to be close to them. There also, in my opinion, cannot be intimacy without mutual knowledge. We have to know each other. So to me, where there's real intimacy, there is mutual knowledge and there is emotional safety. There is both. You want to try to make the, the relationship then one of safety. One of the best ways you do that is by hearing. This is a time you want to hear. As in, okay, you've just come out to me. Now this is a lot for me to handle and I'm sure it's a lot for you to handle but help me understand, you say you're gay, you say you're lesbian. I wanna hear how that is playing out. Are you in a relationship? Do you intend to be in a relationship? Are you fully embracing this? Are you questioning? Are you resisting it? How did you feel when you thought about what it would be like to tell me this? How do you feel about me? How do you feel about us? These are very relevant questions to ask when someone you love comes out to you. Now you'll notice there is no theological compromise in any of those questions. You're not having to abdicate your position as a believer. You are simply inviting honest discussion and creating an environment of safety. I believe one of the best ways we validate someone, one of the best ways to show them respect is by showing them, I am interested enough in you to hear you. That's why even if we broaden this, I believe two of the best evangelistic tools we have are uh, the left ear and the right ear. Because when I am saying to someone, I wanna know your story. Where have you been? What have you experienced? What do you dream? Where do you stand? What I'm saying to them is, I'm interested in you. I value enough our bond and you as an individual to want to know more about you. And that is one of the best ways somebody is made to feel safe. I've noticed that in my own work. Uh, during the week, I work five, six days a week just doing biblical counseling sessions with people. And one thing I've come to see in the counseling environment you certainly don't start off each session, especially in the beginning, by offering a lot of advice. One of the first things I want to do is invite the individual to open up to me by helping me better understand where he's been, where she's been. It's a very, very important part of developing safety then. 
So safety, the safety of listening. And then the safety of reassuring and expressing desire. Very important. We create a safe environment by hearing, and then we create a safe environment by reassuring and expressing our desire. Reassurance, now, it is, of course, knee-jerk and understandable to say, well, no matter what, I love you, which, of course, that's valid, and that's true. That's very true. But you know how I love you is, as a phrase, these days, I love you was almost like have a nice day. In fact, aren't you finding more and more it's kind of a punctuation? A lot of conversations I'm having now are ending with someone saying, love you, Joe. And I believe them. I'm not, I'm not downplaying that. I'm just saying, we, we do say that awfully easy. I love you. Almost to the point where, okay, I expect that. You love me. But do you, your loved one will want to feel, do you respect me? Do you value me? Do you like me? Do you like our relationship? Do you enjoy being in a relationship with me? Because you can love someone, and the answer to all those things might be no. I can love someone who I don't respect, whose relationship I don't really value. I can even love someone who I find to be a major pain in the rear. But I love them, so it can almost seem condescending. What I want someone I love to know is I not just love you, I respect you, I value you, I am interested in you. Our relationship is a priority to me. So you reassure our relationship matters. It really does. I want us to be close and I want us to be mutually respectful. Reassurance and desire, this is what I want for us. So in all of that, in expressing active interest by listening, by reassuring, By expressing our desire, we create an environment of safety when someone we love is gay. Now, having done that, we go to the next level. We've stabilized, hopefully. Then we get into clarifying. Because the fact that we are safe with each other does not mean we are on the same page. It does not mean we agree with each other, nor does it mean we have to agree with each other. But we do need to at least understand each other. So then we move on to clarification. Clarifying. What are we clarifying? One of the first things we clarify is what are we wanting from each other? What are we wanting from each other? I do not have someone in my family who has come out to me as gay. To my knowledge, no one in my family is dealing with this. I'm the only one who ever has. But if someone did... One thing I hope I would convey to them is my desire to better understand what are we wanting from each other. When you came out to me and said, I'm gay, are you wanting me to agree with your position? Are you wanting me to not talk about it? Are you wanting me to meet your partner? Are you wanting me to join a pro-gay organization? Are you wanting me to pray with you? What are you wanting from me? Doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to say yes, and it doesn't mean I'm going to say no, but I really would like to know, in telling me this, what would you like? And then, of course, I want you to know what I want, what I expect from you in light of this. Because there has to be mutuality. 
If you tell me that you're gay and you have decided you are at peace with that, I'm sure you went through quite a process to reach that decision. And I respect that. But you have no right to demand that I agree with it or that I approve. That is not fair. This is where it gets dicey because today especially, there seem to be more and more people saying, if you do not approve, you have rejected. If I say I'm gay, I'm bi, I'm lesbian, I'm trans, and I want you to validate the decision I've made and tell me that you bless that, you're happy with it, you're good with it. And if you don't, you've rejected me. At which point I think it's very fair to ask, can we be reasonable? Very important word in this particular conversation. Can we be reasonable with each other? Is it reasonable or even realistic to expect complete approval in any relationship? Good night, I've been married 33 years now. I know my wife accepts me. I really have no doubts at all about her love. None. But there ain't no way in heaven or earth that that woman approves of everything about me. And if she were here, she would be delighted to take a few hours to tell you what she does not approve of in Joe Dallas. It's a long list, none of which negates her love. It's impossible to be in a relationship with anyone and at some point recognize there is something about you I don't approve of and there is no way you can be in a relationship with anyone without them being able to say with integrity, you know, there are things about you I don't approve of. Not only are there things about you I may not like, that's one thing, but no, there are some beliefs you hold, some things you do, some things you say that you know what? Love you, but I think you're wrong. That is true in any relationship. It is literally impossible to have intimacy without also experiencing the tension of some level of disapproval. So is it reasonable for you, my gay loved one, to say to me, Dad, if you don't approve, you've rejected me? Because in all fairness, does anybody completely agree with anyone? No. Does anyone completely approve of everything about anyone? No. Well, that's where we clarify what we're wanting from each other. And then we also clarify where our lines are drawn with each other. Those are two different things, aren't they? If I say this is what I want, this is what I hope, this is what I wish, this is what I desire, this is what I would like to see happen, none of those are demands, are they? I'm just being honest with you about what I want. What do I want from anyone? Well, I mean, you know, be polite to me, love God, be right with God, pay your bills on time, don't eat too many carbs. I don't know. I mean, I, I can think of all things, I, kinds of things I want, but those aren't demands. I have no right to make those demands. Even when it comes to your relationship with God, if you're someone I know who is an unbeliever, I have no right to say, I demand you believe in Jesus Christ and be born again. Yeah, that'll get you far. No, I, I, I recognize free will. We, we all must. There are some areas in which I'm going to draw the line. No, you may not break into my home and rob me. 
And yeah, if I need to use a weapon, I'll use a weapon. I mean, you know, the lines are drawn there. There are certain things I will or will not go with. So that's why we also look at where our lines are drawn with each other. That's when we enter into the question of boundaries. Here are our beliefs. We've got that. You've come out to me as gay. We've stabilized the situation. We're safe enough with each other. We can be honest with each other about our personal journeys, about what we're experiencing right now with each other, and about our beliefs. Good. Now let's talk about our boundaries. There will be some things that may come up that will require a definite yes or no. That's what boundaries are about. Boundaries determine what we do or what we do not allow. And there's a difference, isn't there, between what we prefer and what we allow. There are a lot of things that I may find irritating about someone I'm in a relationship with. It doesn't mean I'm going to say, stop that. But there are some things that I would have to say, I won't allow that. Now, those things I find tend to vary from person to person as to what your boundaries are. Some boundaries are objective. There are some things I don't believe we should ever allow. Like somebody breaking into your home and robbing you. No, I don't think you should just sit there and let that happen. There are other things, some things that bother me so much that I would have to say, just knock it off, that maybe wouldn't bother you at all, you know? Um, oh, I don't know. Um, sometimes when, when people want to start po talking politics, uh, if it's a social situation and everybody's okay with it. I, I'm fine talking politics with people who don't agree with me. And, and I find a discussion like that can be robust, it can be interesting, it can be energizing, we can have a real good discussion, provided it's reasonable and we're not getting ridiculous about the whole thing. I'm fine with that. Now my wife will go, oh, Joseph, shut up, please, no. <laughs> don't bring any of that up, you know? And I, I get that. For her, that's a boundary. For me, it's not. Now, for me, I, again, this is just me. It doesn't mean anything, really. But I kind of get my dander up when somebody comes up to me out of the blue and says, you know, the Lord told me to tell you something. I feel like, uh-huh. Now, do I deny that that can happen? Of course not. There's plenty of precedent in Scripture for God saying to someone, go and speak to so-and-so. I get that. That's true. But I've seen that abused so many times as a manipulation that I'm kind of like, yeah, I think God has my email address. I checked in with him this morning, and I don't remember him mentioning anything like that. You know, that, but that's, that's just me. I mean, that, you know, I, I don't think objectively we ought to have a thing about that. The point is, you need to know where the lines are going to be drawn. When someone you love is gay, will lines have to be drawn? Not necessarily. But there may be situations that come up that are going to require you to say something definitive one way or another. And that's when I, I recommend a policy of conscience and comfort. A policy of conscience and comfort. Policy of conscience, policy of comfort. Um, if someone asks you, just for example, situations that can come up. Uh, dad, mom, I want to bring my partner home for dinner and I want you to meet him. Dad, mom, my partner and I want to sleep together in the guest room. Dad, mom, I'm getting married to my same-sex partner. I want you to be there, etc. These are all situations that will call for you to think, hmm, 
Can I in good conscience say yes or no to that? You start with conscience because not everything is clearly spelled out in Scripture, is it? Now, if something's clearly spelled out in Scripture, that's a no-brainer. You don't have to worry about conscience or comfort. That's where you have to land. You know, so, for example, I mean, uh, obviously, if, if I worked at a corporation and my coworker said, Joe, tonight we're going out to the strip club after dinner, join us. Of course I cannot do that. That's a no-brainer. But there are other situations that I'm not sure. That's why uh, Romans 14, 23, I find so helpful when Paul said, whatsoever is not done of faith is sin. There are things you might feel comfortable doing I wouldn't feel comfortable doing, and vice versa, you know? Um, I'm comfortable going to movies, provided they are not what I would consider obscene or gratuitous, but I know Christians who in good conscience say, no, I really don't believe I should go to movies. They shouldn't go to movies. The whole alcohol issue, I, you know, I, that is not an option for me to drink alcohol, but I'm not, I could not with integrity say, thou shalt not ever have a beer. I, you know, there's room for question on that. Well, that's a question of personal liberty. Um, that's why you go with the policy of conscience. Will it or will it not violate my conscience? Can I do this before God in good faith? And also a policy of comfort. Am I reasonably comfortable doing that? Now let's, let's kind of see how that plays out. Mom and dad, I want to bring my partner home and we want to sleep together in the guest room. Now to me, I see a clear biblical mandate. Paul told Timothy, do not be a participant in someone else's sin. If I had a son saying, dad, can I bring my girlfriend home to sleep together? I would have to say no. I could not in good conscience say yes to that. The same would be true if they were in a same-sex relationship. I would have to explain, gosh, I understand you and I have different views on this, but in my home, that's not an option. So I would have to go with conscience on that. Um, if my daughter, I don't have one, but if I had a daughter and she said, I have a same-sex partner, I want you to meet her, can I bring her home for dinner? Now, personally, I could not say, oh, that violates my conscience. I don't think it would. I would think, well, yes, I'm, I'm fine meeting her, and yeah, you're welcome to bring her over, and let's get to know each other. I, personally, I do not feel that would violate my conscience at all. I would have to look at the comfort level only in that I wouldn't want to turn it into a fiasco. If she just came out to me, and I'm so devastated by this, and then she says, and by the way, tomorrow night I want to bring my partner home for you to meet her, and I'm like, whoa. I just got sunk or punched when you came out to me, and now you want me to meet your partner, and ah, uh, and I'm I, I'm I'm feeling like you know they'll come over for dinner, and I'm just going to sit there and uh huh until I I don't know say something brilliant like uh, do you want some ketchup on your lesbian you know or something. <laughs> In a case like that, I'd have to say, look, I'm not up for it. I'm not, I, I, maybe at some point I will be, but I really feel like it, it, there would be so much tension right now. You, you must understand, you've had time to get acclimated to where you're at. I'm still getting acclimated. That's why Paul said, you know, as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all people, as much as lieth within you, you see? So for those reasons, if you look at conscience and comfort, now, just... To, to clear the air on a couple of controversial items, there is real controversy, even disagreement among Christian leaders over two critical questions. 
Should a Christian ever attend a same-sex wedding? And if I have a trans family member or friend who wants me to call her or him by another name of the other sex, should I say yes or no to that? And my take, very important, is that these are questionable issues. We have to respect the fact that when people land on a position on these issues, they have probably done so very prayerfully, and you may not agree, but I think you have to respect the position they've landed on. So just for example, there are Christian leaders I highly respect who have said, yes, yeah, sometimes you really should go to a same-sex wedding if it's someone you love. And there are other ones I highly respect who would say, no, that's never an option. Now, my own conscience testifies against, and this is me, it testifies against me attending a wedding of any sort unless I can honestly say, I bless this union. I fully celebrate this. Now, if I had a lesbian or gay loved one who said, I'm having a birthday party, can you come? I'll be there with a present. If I've got a lesbian or gay loved one who's graduating university or has gotten a job promotion or whatever, absolutely. To me, a wedding is not a social event. It is a covenant ceremony. And my presence there, I believe, is a statement of approval. And for that reason, if I cannot say I approve of it, what, whatever the nature of the relationship may be, if I had a Christian friend who dumped his wife for a younger woman and married the younger woman, no, I couldn't be there. Because I could not say I bless and approve of and celebrate this relationship. Would that be hard to say to him? Yes. Let me briefly tell you a story you might find interesting, though. When I married my wife back in 1987, I still had some gay friends, not many, but some. Two in particular, uh, they were a couple who had been together for years. I loved them so much. They met my wife when she was my fiance at the time. We all got along well. We had dinner a few times together. Good relationship, everything great. I sent them an invitation to the wedding. They called me. Now, mind you, this was 1987. Nobody even foresaw same-sex marriage. My gay friend said to me, Joe, we love you and we love Renee, but we can't come because we believe that you were wrong when you left the gay community. We still see you as a gay man and we don't believe a gay man ever should marry a woman. We don't really believe in what you're doing. Please don't be hurt because we don't want to hurt you, but our conscience won't let us be there. Now, Decades later, I find that profound because that tells me they get it. I don't agree with them at all. No, I do not see myself as gay. And yes, I believe my marriage to my wife is a valid, sacred covenant. But I respect the fact that they so value a marriage that if they cannot say in good conscience they celebrate that marriage, they do not believe they can come to the wedding. And I think they're right. I think they're wrong in their belief that the marriage is wrong, but I think they are right in believing that you should not attend a wedding unless you fully bless that. Now, do you have to agree with that? Of course not. I know many Christian leaders, as I said, who would say, Joe Dallas, you're all wet, but that's where I stand on that. The same with naming an individual or using a name for an individual. Personally, I believe that if someone believes they are of the opposite sex, the problem is not the sex they have, but the belief they have. And I cannot in good conscience join them 
in what I believe to ultimately be a delusion. Well intended, perhaps, but still, I believe that they are wrong. And so I respectfully try to work out with trans people I have known, hey, do we really have to call each other by proper names? You're my friend. I like you. I respect you. I love you. But, and this is an important point, I would never ask you to do something which violates your conscience. Please do not ask me to do something which violates mine. That's why I find the policy of conscience and comfort, it's pretty workable, which leads to a third level, and that is dialoguing. Dialoguing. We stabilize, we clarify, and now it's okay, let's talk. Conversations do change things, they really do. One of the first critical parts of a dialogue, help me understand your process. Help me understand your process. One of my favorite lines from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet is when Romeo is discussing a friend of his who is making fun of him because he hasn't yet met Juliet, he is still in love with Rosalind. And his friend is mocking him for that and Romeo says of his friend, he jests at scars that never felt a wound. He's laughing at scars that never felt a wound. He has no idea what I've been through and so he can make light of it. I am afraid. Many Christians have made light of the experience of lesbian or gay loved ones by just assuming, oh, that's just something you chose. That's a stupid idea. Snap out of it. Grow up. It's a phase. It'll pass. And all of that essentially sends the message of, I diminish everything you've gone through. Because your loved one has been through a lot. Make no mistake about that. I will never in any way validate homosexuality itself. But I can absolutely validate the often painful experience of someone coming to terms with their own homosexuality. That is true. So that's one of the things you want to you wanna try to draw out of your loved one is help me understand what this has been like for you. Then help me understand your position. That's a very important request. Help me understand your position. I understand your experience. You realized you were attracted to the same sex. Now help me understand how you reached the conclusion which has led to your position. To put it plainly, how do you determine truth? On what basis do you determine what is right or wrong? You kind of want to do, I think you can see this is kind of segued into more of an apologetics issue than just a moral issue which it really is, by the way. I believe today, gender and sexuality issues have become apologetics issues for the church. And I believe in that vein, we want to take a cue from Paul, who went into synagogues and what reasoned with people. He tried to find some common ground, like when he spoke to the Athenians. He looked around and saw all the monuments to all of the different gods and even one to the unknown god in case anybody got missed. And he said, okay, I see that you believe there is something above the natural world. So do I. Let's start from there. Now, can we reason with each other as to how we determine who that someone is and how we know that someone? That's where you start with it. How do you reach your conclusion about what's right or wrong? Help me understand your position. And finally, is ongoing dialogue an option? Can we keep talking about this? Now, if your loved one says no, you must respect that. And there really are times when you should drop the discussion. If someone you love is saying, mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, I really don't want to talk about this. I'm tired of the argument. 
I don't want to feel like I have to defend myself. I don't want the tension. I think we absolutely should respect that. I do. Now, briefly, let me mention, if you have a loved one who was a teenager or a minor, you do, of course, exercise authority in your home. You can't force a dialogue, but you must be in the position where you say, I will, of course, retain authority over who you may or may not see, where you may or may not go. I can't tell you what to believe, but absolutely, I will retain the prerogative of determining what you do or do not do. That's another matter entirely. But assuming the person is an adult, if they say ongoing dialogue is not an option, hey, if it's tearing us apart, let's sustain the bond. But if we can keep this dialogue going, let's, let's keep learning from each other. Because at the very least, if I do not agree with you, I would like to better understand you. And if you do not agree with me, I would like you to better understand me. What are we looking for out of that? Four C's. Communication, consideration, conviction, and conversion. What do I want when someone I love is gay? I want improved communication. We are talking. The dialogue is open. We are better understanding each other. I want consideration. I am hoping that if my loved one is not embracing truth, through our dialogue, my loved one is at least considering truth. Because there are times people shift, aren't there? There are times people just hold the position, no, I'm right, you're wrong. And then you start talking and they're more like, hmm, I can at least consider that perhaps there's truth in what you're saying. Remember when Agrippa said to Paul, you know, you almost have persuaded me to become a Christian. That was a consideration. We want to see a shift like that. Of course, we want to see conviction. I am hoping that when I am dialoguing with someone who is not walking in truth, I know that I do not have the authority or the ability to change their mind. I don't have the right to change their mind. I don't have the ability to change their mind. But I'm hoping that God will use what we've spoken about, and then by his Holy Spirit, he will start convicting the individual. And they will start experiencing that sense of perhaps I am wrong. And finally, we want conversion, of course. We want conversion from death to life. May the person I love come to know Christ. Because first and foremost, if they're gay but unsaved, the unsaved is the part that matters. The gay is just the fruit of it. I want them to know Christ. I want them to be converted from death to life. And then I want them to be converted from error to truth. And in that desire, I know I am desiring what God desires. And that's when I must hang on to what Paul said. I know who I've believed. And I am persuaded he is able to keep what I have committed unto him against that day. We commit the people we love daily. We did that from the day we were born. We always will. We must trust that God is still at work, even when we have done what we can and we feel as though it's gotten us nowhere. That, of course, is when the power of God is usually just beginning to do what only he can do. Let me pray with you briefly before we close. Father, we do hold before you the people we love. I want to pray and we agree together for those of us who have loved ones who are lesbian, gay, or transgender. We pray, Lord, bring them to you. Bless our relationship with them. Give us increased wisdom. Do the work by your Holy Spirit that only you can do and help us to be good stewards of truth and of the people you've entrusted to us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.